Anyway, we are in this series of messages. We're talking about what happens when you feel spiritually stuck. And I want to start today by talking about a phrase. If you've been a part of Cross Church for a while, you've probably heard me say once or twice. I feel like I say it every six months or so. Um, usually when someone kind of grinds my gears and that just feels like, you know, the dad thing to do or something like that. I'm not really sure. But um, it's this phrase. Uh, it goes this way from a guy named Andy Stanley. He says, your system... It's perfectly designed to get the results you're currently getting. Now, that's probably poor grammar. You know, he's from Georgia, so you got to give him a break, right? So, um, but your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're currently getting, okay? When I don't like the results I experience in some facet of my life, everything inside of me wants to blame the system, right? It wants to blame something wrong. It wants to blame, like, other factors, okay? So one of the things I want to do is I wish I weighed about 50 pounds less. Actually, I wish I weighed 100 pounds less, but I'm trying to keep it realistic, you know? Because um, I have, like, family members and stuff. We have, like, hereditary health stuff that I know, like, you know, no doctor in the world's ever been like, hey, you, if you were just overweight, all of your health problems would go away. You know, like that's usually, I'm waiting for the day. Medical science tells us that, unfortunately, still not yet. But everything within me, I want to blame like all the other factors around me. Oh, things have been really stressful at work. Oh, things have been hard and you know, stressful in, at home. Or, oh, yeah, I just didn't have time to get to the grocery store. Oh, man, you know, it's just more convenient to go to McDonald's or wherever, you know, Chick-fil-A for the ninth time this week, you know, whatever it is, you know. And I kind of do that sort of thing where I want to make excuses for myself because, like, somehow if I have an excuse, that makes it better, you know, like that makes it somehow fixed, okay? And what I'm not trying to deny is the fact that, like, there are real systemic factors that affect the results we get sometimes, right? Like, that's certainly the case, right? But the fact is, is that for most of the things in my life, uh, my system or my way of doing things or my way of living my life is the primary culprit to blame for the results that I am currently getting or experiencing. If I want to change the results I'm experiencing, usually the best way to do that is to change my input, right? To change what I am doing, to change how I do that. And um, there's a very famous football coach um, for the guys, you know, like, like football. Okay, so yeah, that's right. Bill Parcells, okay? Bill Parcells was a multiple time Super Bowl winner, I believe with the Giants as who he coached. And this guy's such a good coach, he actually became the coach of the New York Jets and the Jets were a good team when he like coached them, which like never happens for the Jets, okay? But Bill Parcells is very famous. He had this one statement he would always make. He says, you are what your record says you are. That was, that was what he'd say, okay? And so if your team is 5-11, and 11, you know, you got five wins and 11 losses, here's the thing that we do. We typically kind of talk about our favorite NFL team or, you know, Florida State Seminoles or whoever it is. We talk about them like a kid's softball team. Like, oh, well, that's okay. You know, you just had too many snacks before the game. It just didn't, you know, wasn't working out well or, you know, whatever. We come up with all these lame excuses. But Bill Parcells is a great football coach. You know, he knows, hey, making excuses is not the way that we're going to be able to, like, actually improve and grow as a team. That that we are what our record says we are, right? If we're a 5 11 team, that means, hey, we must not be too good. You know, like we, we got to fix the system if we want to get some better results. So I say all of that because we're talking about feeling spiritually stuck. And today we have to kind of wrestle with this really uncomfortable truth about when I feel spiritually stuck, okay? And it's this, is that we hit spiritual walls because our spiritual system leads us to walls, Okay. We hit spiritual walls because our spiritual system, our way of doing things is designed to lead us to walls. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
We read these words from Jesus' brother, James, in the first week of this series. James chapter 1, verse 4. So, like, he comes out of the gate firing with this. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, now, let's, like, that's a nice message from James, right? But if I can, let's just kind of look at the underside of that statement. So, uh, Chase, throw that back up there for us. If uh, James is saying perseverance needs to finish its work, that means I am, as a spiritual person, unfinished, right? If I need to be mature and complete, what that means is currently, in my current state, I am immature and incomplete. If I need to be not lacking anything, what that means is right now, I am currently lacking something, okay? And so if we're going to somehow grow, if we're going to somehow kind of experience something new, right? If we're going to get past the wall, here's what James is kind of helping us to see is your spiritual system is helpful, right? It's good. It's gotten you up to this point, but let's not like, let's not be foolish here, right? I need God to mature complete and help me to not lack anything. I need him to work within me, right? And so when we come up against a spiritual wall, part of the reason why we come up to the spiritual wall is because our way of, of following Jesus is, is broken, deficient, lacking in some way, right? It's designed and destined to bring me to a wall. Am I making sense right here? Am I okay? Okay, okay, good. I'm glad. Five year with me. That's good enough for me. I'm sure online you're like at home, just, you know, cheering me on. Anyway, okay, so... That's kind of what that means, right? And so when we get to the wall, like, hey, I say that not to guilt you, not to make you feel bad, okay? I'm here to tell you, hey, that's all of us, right? That all of us at some level, as we've talked about, we're going to hit the wall. And all that is is an indication of, guess what? I'm not a perfectly formed follower of Jesus yet, which is, in fact, part of the reason why the wall comes our way, why the wall exists and comes into our lives, okay? Um, so here's the whole kind of point of knowing that fact. When we get to the wall, we have two options before us. And here are the two options. I can turn around or I can double down. Okay, I can turn around. You know, come on, yeah, get a little bit every now and then I get. Yeah, okay, no one. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm free. Bonnie Raitt is here. Whoever sang that, Bonnie Tyler, I can't remember. Bonnie Raitt, that was really bad. Anyway, that's um, Timbaland also saying. Uh, anyway, we can turn around. Okay, so when we get to the wall, we can say, hey, you know what? I'm at the wall. I probably need to like go a different way, right? The Bible word for turn around is repent. Now, we don't like to say that word because like people like me give it a bad name because we're like, repent, you know, turn from your sin, you know, and we turn sin into like a nine syllable word, you know, we, we talk about to a red in the face, okay? But all repent means is to turn around or to change your mind about something. It's the idea of like, hey, I, I'm going to, I'm going to approach life differently, okay? You know, like, again, to use kind of the weight loss example, right? You could say, hey, if I decided that all of a sudden I'm going to like actually go grocery shopping and make all my food at home instead of like stopping somewhere that has a drive-thru all the time, right? That would be a, that's a repentance of sort, right? I'm, I'm changing my mind. I'm turning around. I'm moving in a different direction. Or we can double down. Okay, now doubling down, like we can all recognize it when it's like, you know, like some of us, we double down at the wall and we just kind of grit our teeth and we entrench ourselves and we dig our heels in, right? We kind of do that. We can all easily recognize that. The tough thing about doubling down, though, is most people, at least in my experience and certainly when I think about myself, 
most of us, when we hit a spiritual wall and we double down, we don't do it like a little like petulant four-year-old kind of the way they double down. We're a lot more covert about it, okay? Because here's what we do when we hit the wall. We, we kind of get confronted with something about ourselves or about our way of following Jesus or about our lives that we know like we're not going to try to justify, but we think that somehow because we feel bad about it, that's the same as doing something about it. And like that actually isn't true, right? Again, I hate to keep harping on this, right? If I want to lose weight, feeling bad that I need to lose weight, it, trust me, I tried. It's not going to get you there, right? Going out to like wherever it is you go to buy the cute, you know, oh man, look at my new Lululemon sweatpants. Oh, I got a Fabletics, you know, subscription or whatever, right? Like buying the cute new gym clothes, getting a gym membership, okay? No, that, that isn't going to make you healthier, right? Those can be good steps perhaps to get there, right? But like that, that's not going to do anything, right? That, that's just you feeling bad, feeling like I should do something, but not actually doing something, okay? When it gets to like religion, us in America, we're the worst about this, okay? Because I, like, I have conversations with people, and I felt this way too, so I'm not like wagging the finger because I'm privy to this too, okay? We go to church, and we sit in church, and man, you ever sit in church, and it's like, man, that, that church service had my name on it, you know? Like, it was just like, man, like, whoa, God, come at me, bro. You know, and he did, okay? You know, and I feel bad about it. And i like, oh, yeah, man, I really need to do that. I'm amening. I'm waving my flag. And I'm doing, you know, whatever it is I do. You know, I feel real spiritual, real religious, right? And I felt really, really bad. So it was really spiritual, right? Because I didn't actually, like, change anything. But, but I felt bad. And God, God saw that I felt bad. So it's like the same, right? Okay, here's my point. Guilt is no substitute for change, okay? Let me just tell you this right now about God. God, God will take unguilty change over guilty lack of change a hundred times out of a hundred. I guarantee you, okay? Guilt, now don't hear me wrong, okay? Guilt, conviction, you know, whatever, it, whatever word you want to sub in there, that can be a great catalyst for change, okay? I've seen that happen in my life, right? Where I do something stupid, I do something wrong, I'm going in one direction and someone kind of says something and kind of checks me a little bit. I'm like, whoa, that, wow, yeah, that is kind of a mess. You're right, right? And I felt guilty. I felt really bad. I felt really guilty, right? But I didn't just stay there. I allowed my guilt to move me in a new direction, okay? That's good. That's guilt being a catalyst for change, right? But the, it didn't stop at guilt. It continued to change, okay? But what we often do is we think guilt is, and we wouldn't say this out loud. This is just kind of how we feel, but it's so true, right? Guilt becomes a substitute for change. Hey, honey, I'm not going to be kinder at home, but I promise you, I'll feel bad about not being kind at home. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks. That's really great. Do you feel it now? You know, like whatever, okay? Because guilt is a poor substitute for change. When you're in a relationship with someone and they keep hurting you, I mean, okay, great. I'm glad you feel bad. I would much rather you just change, okay? I'm in a position where I like lead volunteers and people a lot of the time, okay? And here's my thing. It's like sometimes people let me down on something I'm kind of expecting them to do. And they say, oh, Wes, I'm so sorry. I feel bad. I'm like, 
well, I'm glad you feel bad. I, I would prefer you to like do the thing, you know, regardless of how you feel. That would be a lot more helpful than, you know, a week later being like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot, you know. Anyway, sorry, I got my, me and my therapist to work on that later, okay? But guilt is not a substitute for change, okay? The sub, like, when we hit the wall and we kind of become aware of our need to change, okay, we can't just double down by feel like, feeling bad, but continuing to do the same things that got us to the wall in the first place, right? If we want to move past the wall by God's grace, what it means is I'm actually going to change my ways and my behaviors in some way um, to move in a new direction, which is what I want to talk to us about today, okay? We're going to look at the story of a guy who's uh, fairly unknown, probably to most of us uh, in the room or watching online today, uh, a guy who doesn't get enough you know, press, I think, but we're going to, we're going to I'm going to be on his, you know, rollout committee, make him get a lot more uh, play in, in churches all around the country because I totally have the power to do that. And his name is King Asa. Okay, King Asa. Now, um, little history lesson as we get started. Okay, Israel for a long time they were just kind of this group of people. They weren't necessarily like some sort of formulated country. Then they were like, well, everyone else has a king. God said so we want a king, and God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And Israel got its first king. Anyone know what his name was? Anyone? Saul. Saul. Yeah, good job. Okay, good job, Bible College. Uh, and so <laughs> King Saul became the first king of Israel. Now, King Saul was a really bad king of Israel, so we're, we're just one king in, and God's like, well, we kind of need a regime change now. So that's not good for your country when that happens, okay? So Saul was replaced by another king, very famous king, Israel's most famous king. Does anyone know what his name was? David. David. Good job. Yeah, Liz, I'm sorry. You're hesitating there. Yeah. Uh, king David. David's son then became king. His name was? Solomon. Solomon. That's right. Yeah. Now, after Solomon ruled, his son, I'll be really impressed with someone who didn't go to Bible. Does anyone know what yeah. Solomon's son's name was? You may not know this even if you Solomon went to. Solomon Jr. Solomon Jr. <laughs> good job. Yeah. Uh, Solomon Wilcox, actually, F, uh, former NFL player. Anyway. Um, his name was Rehoboam, okay? Not very catchy. It's not a very good name. Yeah, okay. Rehoboam, not a very good king, okay? He was kind of immature when he took the throne. Uh, he did something really stupid. And so basically, like, they had, like, this big, all the, like, Israel was comprised, like, 12 states, essentially. And Rehoboam did this really stupid thing. And so 10 of the 12 states were like, huh. Eh, Rehoboam, that's the way it's going to be. Peace out, Girl Scout. We'll see you later. Uh, you know, we're just going to take our ball and go home. Now, What's funny to me is Rehoboam was the king of Israel, but so many people left his kingdom, they actually formed their own country and they called it Israel, which I was like, man, like you only give me like the name, like don't I have copyright on that? Anyway, so they formed the northern kingdom of Israel and Rehoboam and the other two states that are sticking with him form a new kingdom. Does anyone know what the name of the other kingdom was called? Judah. Judah. That's right. Yeah. The southern kingdom of Judah. Yeah. That's a good try. I appreciate that. Okay. So Rehoboam is now the king of Judah. Rehoboam reigns, he dies, his son Abijah takes the throne. Now, Rehoboam and Abijah were not very good rulers. They're just kind of immature, bad people, okay? They did, though, the thing that all of us do with God, which is like, they weren't really that interested in God unless, like, things got bad, and then they threw up what I call the EMS prayer or, like, the paramedic prayer, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like, 
hey God, <laughs> well, is this thing still on? You know, like, uh, can I talk to you about this, right? And sometimes God would like answer their prayer and help them out with whatever they're struggling with. Sometimes he wouldn't, okay? And that was kind of the way that they walked with God. And unsurprisingly, the nation of Judah did not walk very well with God as a result. They kind of saw it wasn't important to their rulers. And so they kind of were like, okay, well, if it ain't important to them, not going to be important to us, okay? Abijah, in uh, this book called Second Chronicles, is basically like a history of the southern kingdom of Judah. We're told in Second Chronicles chapter 14, Abijah rested with his ancestors. He died, and he was buried in the city of David. That's Jerusalem. Asah, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, Now, Asah is taking over a nation here that's basically at the wall. Okay, Things aren't doing well spiritually. His dad hasn't really led the kingdom. His dad before him didn't really lead the kingdom all that well. They're surrounded on all sides by enemies. Things feel really tenuous. It's hard for us to appreciate this in America because like, there's never really been a time in America where we're like, oh, no, Canada's going to invade, you know, or that kind of thing. Okay, so like, it's hard for us to appreciate. But like, it, Judah's in this really tenuous kind of position. Okay, So Abijah, he kind of recognizes our nation is sitting at the wall. And Abijah does something. Or I'm sorry, Abijah. Asa does something really smart that his dad, uh, Abijah, did not do. He says, hey, you know what? My system is perfectly designed to get the results that I am getting. So I'm going to change my system and my way of doing things and see if I can get a different result. And so the chronicler, the historian here, continues. And he tells us that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed down the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah was like this pagan goddess in the land of Canaan and Palestine where the uh, Judah was. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and his commandments. He removed the high places that was like often places where pagan worship happened and incense altars in every town in Judah. And the kingdom was at peace under him. Okay, so Asa's first thing he says is, okay, we can't like have this little paramedic prayer relationship with God anymore. Okay, we're actually going to like make this a thing. We're actually going to like chase after God like like adults, you know, like, like we're going to do this like like people who actually care about this. And to make sure we do that, I'm going to actually just remove all the things that get in the way of us pursuing God. And all these guys, I mean, last time I checked, Asherah didn't lead us out of Egypt. Asherah didn't part the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, that was right. That was Yahweh, the God of our ancestors. Why don't we just go with this guy and instead of like turn into all these other gods? Okay, so Assad like clears house. He does all this. He's kind of trying to purify the nation. Okay, a couple verses later, we're told this about Assad. He said, let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. Hey, let's fortify our defenses. Well, Asah, that sounds like a real good, real good strategy, buddy. Good, good job, man. But then Asah does something that no politician or political leader ever does. Okay? They're like politicians love to like take credit for good ideas that they had nothing to do with. You ever notice that? Okay. But Asah says, hey, guys, the land is still ours because we've sought the Lord our God. Like, hey, any success that we have here, it's not because I'm like a great king or an amazing person. Like, it's totally just because God is blessing us. Like, like the people of Judah are like, I don't know what to do with my hands right now, man. Like, I, I, this is unfamiliar territory, buddy. Like, what, what are you saying? He says, well, we sought him, and God has given us rest on every side, right? So Asah's like, he's clearing house. 
He's given credit to God. Okay, a couple of verses later, uh, the historian who write who wrote Second uh, Chronicles tells us about. Uh, oh, sorry. So they built and prospered. Sorry, Chase. I left that off there. Um, so a couple of verses later, the nation is attacked uh, by an enemy invaders, essentially, and apparently things are going pretty bad. Right? They're kind of surrounded on all sides. And Asa, the first thing he does, he doesn't draw up a battle plan. He calls a prayer meeting. Okay. And he says, uh, Asa called to the Lord his God, so he's praying to God, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name uh, we have come against this vast army. Okay, so God, hey, you see us here, we're struggling, we need your help. Lord, you are our God, do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And sure enough, after Asa prayed this prayer, God like delivered the army, did this really cool miracle to help that happen, right? Things are going well, nations enjoying peace. So again, just to recap, so Asa clears house, you know, of all the foreign idols. Asa gives credit to God. Asa relies on God when things get hard, right? It wasn't just like this is the only time he turned to God, right? So far, we kind of think, okay, Asa seems like a pretty good dude, you know? Um, later on in the next chapter, Asa is approached by this guy named um, I want to make sure I get his name right. Azariah. Okay, now, Azariah was a prophet. Now, Azariah, here's what you need to know about Azariah. There's nothing to know about Azariah. Okay? This is the only time in the Bible his name appears. He didn't write a book. He didn't go on Ellen. Okay? He didn't do any of the stuff that like makes you have a big name or any of that. Okay? Like Azariah is just some dude, apparently. Who one day God's spirit came upon him and gave him a message that he needed to take to King Asa. Okay, and the reason I say that is because like it would be easy for Asa to be like dismissive. Like this guy didn't have any like he he's on Instagram. He doesn't have a blue check next to his name. Okay, like he he's just like a nobody. But he gives Asa this kind of prophet that basically this prophecy that basically is like, hey, you need to follow God, right? That kind of thing. And so we're told that when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, that's literally all we know about Azariah. He was the son of Oded, who apparently was also a prophet. Uh, he took courage. He removed detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns that he had captured in the hills, right? So it basically Asa kind of heard these words of prophecy, and he, instead of rejecting them and turning away from them, he decided, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to keep doing that. Uh, he did that in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord. Okay, so like at the temple had become in disrepair. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Okay, so okay, Asa, like, good, good on you, man. Like, way to go, bud. I, I appreciate that. Later on, uh, Asa's grandmother uh, brings like a, like an Asherah pole or an idol or something into the palace. Okay, so like these very foreign gods that that Asa's been trying to rid the land of, okay? And here's what Asa did. King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Makah, from her position as queen mother. Now, let's just think about a couple of things here. Like, before we get to the idol thing, like, it was basically kind of like one of those situations, I imagine, in your family where it's like, okay, who's going to tell grandma? Like, the, like, we can't do that. Do you want to tell grandma? I don't want to tell grandma. Like, you know. And so Asa was like, hey, I'll step up. I'll do it, okay? And he, and he didn't just say, hey, get this thing out of here. He said, hey, also, you're fired, right? Like, he, he was like, you're done, okay? He deposed her because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asher. Now, here's my favorite part of the story. He doesn't stop there. 
Asaph cut it down, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. That's like the local trash dump, right? So like Asaph wasn't playing, man. Like you brought this in here. Hey, you're fired. Also, give me your thing. I'm going to break it over my kneecap. I'm tossing it. Like he is serious, dude. Like this is kind of his deal. Now, this is a real big deal. Asaph is following God's command at great cost to himself. I mean, not only is it like awkward in the family, okay, doing this, like the queen mother is like a really important person. The matriarch of the royal family is a really, really important person. I mean, some of you, you're in families and cultural contexts where you can appreciate this, right? Whoever the oldest lady is in the family, like it doesn't matter what she says, sky is green. It's like, yeah, grandma, sky is green. You're totally right. Yeah. But it's not just that. Like in this culture, okay, this is a real big deal. Later on in Judah's history, uh, another queen mother is actually going to lead a successful coup against the sitting government, okay? Because if you're the queen mother, you had a lot of power. You may not have like an official position or title or whatever, but you had a lot of power, right? So Asaph steps in this conversation with his grandma, and he wasn't assured that this was going to go well. He wasn't assured that this was just going to be like, oh, yeah, they have falling out. Now they can't come to family reunions together kind of thing. Okay, like that's a real big deal. Okay, Asaph did that. One other thing Asaph did later on. He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and articles that he and his father had dedicated. Okay, so basically, um, Asah, anytime they would like capture new lands or get new stuff, he wouldn't just enrich himself personally with it. He actually gave it back to God. Like when they would get plunder or when other kings would send gifts, right? Like Asah's just a good guy. Okay, now we've talked about all this stuff that Asah does, okay? And I'm just trying to show you, when Judah was at the wall, Asah knew there's a way past the wall. But the way past the wall is not going to be by me doubling down on all the stuff that my father and my grandfather and his father did that got us here in the first place. It's going to require me to act differently. What got us here isn't going to get us there. And so he lived and he acted different. He didn't double down. He turned around, okay? But unfortunately, his story is not all good. In fact, in many ways, uh, it's a cautionary tale for us because it seems that Asah later on suffered from this C word that is detrimental to our spiritual walk with Jesus, and it's the word complacency. Because when we turn the page into 2 Chronicles chapter 16, Here's what we see. A guy named Basha was new king of Israel. And uh, he captured this important city that was right on the border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And what that basically meant was that he could control and make sure no one's going in and nothing's coming out. So this is a really big deal because now, like, the economy's going to tank. The nation can't get the resources that they need, okay? Not to mention that this city is about five miles away from Jerusalem. So now King Asah, he's not just like facing an economic crisis and a political crisis. He's also got an enemy invader that's five miles away from his doorstep, which I, you know, personally I probably wouldn't like if I was him, right? Now we know what old Asah would do, right? He'd be like, okay, we're going to call another prayer meeting. You know, we got another no-name prophet we can get in here to talk to us and kind of you know, do something, okay? Like, but he doesn't do that. We're told what he does right here in, in 2 Chronicles 16. Asah then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Oh, that doesn't sound good. And out of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. So, hey, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to take some of my money and all of God's money, and we're going to give it to this like foreign army that doesn't even know our God, and we're just going to ask him to help us out. Okay, so next verse, we're told, Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. Which, just side note, any time in life you're relying on someone where it's like, hey, I know you made an agreement with this person, but I want you to break the agreement with that person and make an agreement with me. And he's like, okay, that's not a reliable person that you should like build. It just let's free advice for you there today, okay? See, uh, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. And his plan works. He withdraws, you know, they kind of win back this little city. Things are okay in the land once again, okay? But unfortunately, a couple verses later, Asa is visited by another no-name prophet of the Lord, okay? And here's what this guy says in verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Asa, because you relied on Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand, okay? And unfortunately, you have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. Okay, now, again, old Asa, right, he would have heard this guy, and here's what I imagine he would have done. He would have said, oh my gosh, you're, you're right. Right, and he would have been broken up over his sin. He would have been like, you know, face down in the carpet. God, you know, please forgive me. Please help me, God. Even if you don't take this consequence away, forgive my sin. Right, like, like I imagine that's what his response would be. But something again has changed in Asa. And the very next verse, we're told what he does. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. That's understandable, right? We don't like to get bad news. But he was so enraged that he put him in prison. And at the same time, Asab brutally oppressed some of the people. The first king in the era of the divided monarchy to be described as a good man who followed the Lord was King Asa of Judah. King Asa of Judah is also the first ruler in the divided monarchy to take a prophet, physically persecute them, and throw them into prison. The same guy who set all these great firsts would also, unfortunately, set a really bad first at the end of his reign. And he sadly, if you read the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, would see he opened up a door that some lesser men were not afraid to follow him right into later on. And basically from this point on, anytime a prophet came to the king and the king didn't like the message, you can guess what happened to the prophet after that. And that door was opened by King Asa his complacency. Um, God was really unhappy with King Asa, so he actually sent Asa this disease of his feet. Uh, he was in a lot of pain. We have no idea what it is. I'm not, I don't want a foot disease. That sounds really bad, okay? And so Asa was afflicted with this disease in his feet, and we're actually told that at the end of his life, Asa refused to pray to God to ask him to help with this sickness that he had. He would only listen to the advice of physicians. Now, that's not like a, a slap against physicians and like listening to medical advice. You should totally do that. Um, but what it is a statement is about how the condition of Asa's heart had changed. And he was not open to seeking God for help that he needed. He, he, would, he refused to allow himself to be humbled. And his story is a cautionary tale for us about how when we're at the wall, how when we decide to embrace a different system and pattern of living, things can change. There's hope. But his life is also a cautionary tale 
that warns us that it's so easy for us to lose sight of the narrow path that Jesus talks about in following him and said to find ourselves walking on a path that's doomed to lead us to destruction, which is exactly what Asa did. So I want to return to the point that we started with, but this time I want to ask is a question. So in your life, in my life, when I stand at the wall, am I going to double down or am I going to turn around? Um, like, I don't know what that is. Right? What, what I do know is I feel like God is a really good communicator. And so for each of us, as we stand at the wall, my guess is that in due course of time, God's going to hopefully communicate to us where it is that we need to change or to turn. Generally, a really good indicator of this for me is where I feel defensive. When someone kind of hits me and, you know, in a place that just feels kind of tender in my soul, right? And I kind of you know, react and, and wince in pain. That's usually a good indicator. Um, if someone keeps telling me to do the same thing, hey, you should really see a counselor. Hey, you really need to kind of work on that issue. Hey, man, I'm kind of concerned about the path that you're walking down, right? And I just kind of dismiss it or I ignore it or I go, ah, oh, you know, I'll get to it later, right? Well, that's usually a pretty good indicator of a spot where I'm doubling down instead of turning around. The fact is, when we come to the wall, there's no shame in that because that's going to happen to all of us. But the question is, when I find myself at the wall, what's my response? Do I entrench myself there or do I choose to turn around? And our answer makes all the difference. A guy named Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, um, he writes about the kings of Israel and of Judah. And interestingly enough, um, Dallas Willard makes this observation. Now, he's going to write about a guy named King Uzziah. Okay, so this is a later king in Judah's history. But I want to read to you what he says about King Uzziah. And I want you just to think about, gosh, it feels like we could kind of transpose Asa's story right over top of this in a lot of ways. Here's what Dallas Willard says. The works that were accomplished through Isaiah's association with God in action distracted him from his original vision and refocused himself, refocused him on himself and on what he was doing. Okay, Isaiah, kind of like Asa, started on a good path and a good trajectory, on a good direction. And then he had a little bit of success, and as we're going to see, things kind of changed. His heart, Dallas Willard writes, uh, was lifted up. This language of the Bible became a standard way of diagnosing the failures of the kings of Judah and Israel. It always had the result that they took more upon themselves than was warranted. Maybe like making, I don't know, a foreign alliance with someone with money that I didn't have to pay for you know, a partner that I didn't need, right? In Isaiah's case, it was his decision to perform temple rituals that were not permitted to him, okay? Isaiah basically like did the job of a priest. That was a really big no-no in the kingdom of Judah, okay? But in most cases, these kings formed human alliances or tried to establish practices that overestimated what could be accomplished by human strength. Sound familiar? And Dallas Willard finishes by writing, they glorified themselves and did not rely upon God. Here's a sad truth about my life oftentimes, is that I'm a lot more willing at the wall, as crazy and silly as this is, I will spend a lot more time glorifying myself, i.e. just kind of doing my life, my way, on my terms, and my choosing, however I want to, than actually saying, hey, you know what? I need to change. And then embracing the fact that I actually need to be open 
to doing something different. Because what got me here, while it may have been good, is not going to get me over there. And if over there is where I want to be, what that means is I need to embrace a new system to lead me there. Here's a beautiful thing about scripture, folks. Scripture shows us front to back, cover to cover, that change is possible. Things can be different. God honors the heart of people who choose and decide to follow him. And God is just tickled pink when he sees people who say, God, I've been moving in the wrong direction and I need to change, right? But falls on us to be people who are willing to say, God, I really hate to say this, but I am open to change. I'm willing not just to feel guilty about it. I'm willing not just to talk a good game about it. God, I'm willing by your grace to take a step to actually do it. Because we stand at the wall, that is my prayer for us. Why don't we go ahead and stand up and uh, I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the gracious, merciful God, the God who is compassion, the God who knows our ins and outs, every single flaw and imperfection, also everything good that you've wired into us that, that we see displayed in a somewhat muted or broken way. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you that we're sinners. We acknowledge before you what James says, that we need your work to perfect and form and shape us, to mature us. Lord, we pray you would supply what is lacking in our faith. But Father, we pray that not just expecting for you to magically wave your wand and fix us, but God, knowing that you call us to be active participants in the change that you wish to see. Lord, we choose in this moment, here and now, to participate in the change you seek, even when we stand at the wall. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior.